Welcome back to the Book Club Commune with me, your host, Ivy Poesi. We're going to be finishing up Imperialism today, Chapter 9 and Chapter 10 in one episode, and we'll be done with Imperialism, wrap it up in a nice little bow, and we'll have that all done. Um, again, I'm still in a parking deck. It's not quiet. We're, I'm making do with how it is, so at least it's done now. Sorry for the poor audio quality but it, it is what it is in order to actually be able to do this. It's either this or nothing at all, and I'd rather do it than not do it. Um, but without further ado, let's get into the reading. Chapter 9. The Critique of Imperialism. By the critique of imperialism in the broad sense of the term, we mean the attitude towards imperialist policy of different classes of society as part of their general ideology. The enormous dimensions of finance capital concentrated in a few hands and created an extremely extensive and close network of ties and relationships which subordinate not only the small and medium but even the very small capitalists and small masters on the one hand and the intense struggle waged against other national state groups of financiers for the partition of the world and the power to rule over the countries, on the other hand, caused the wholesale transition of the possessing classes to the side of imperialism. The signs of the times are a general enthusiasm regarding its prospects, a passionate defense of imperialism, and every possible embellishment of its real nature. The imperialist ideology also permeates the working class, there is no Chinese wall between it and other, other classes. Leaders of the so-called Social Democratic Party of Germany are today justly called social imperialists. That is, socialists in words and imperialists in deeds. But as early as 1902, Hobson noted the, the existence of Fabian imperialists, who belonged to the opportunist Fabian society in England. The bourgeois scholars and publicists usually come out in defense of imperialism in a somewhat veiled form and obscure its complete domination in its profound roots. They strive to concentrate attention on details and secondary characteristics, and to do their very best to distract attention from the main issues by means of ridiculous schemes for reform, such as police supervision of the trusts and banks, etc. Less frequently, cynical and and frank imperialists speak out and are bold enough to admit the absurdity of the idea of reforming the fundamental features of imperialism. We will give an example. The German imperialists attempt in the magazine Archives of World Economy to follow the movement for national emancipation in the colonies, particularly, of course, in colonies other than those belonging to Germany. They note the, f the ferment and protest movements in India, the movement in Natal, South Africa, the movements in the Dutch East Indies, etc. One of them, commenting on an English report of the speeches delivered at a conference of subject peoples and races held June 28 to 30, 1910, at which representatives of various peoples subject to foreign domination in Africa, Asia, and Europe were present, writes as follows in appraising the speeches delivered in this conference. Quote, we are told that we must fight against imperialism that the dominant states must recognize the right of subject peoples to home rule, that an intentional tribunal should supervise the fulfillment of treaties concluded between the great powers and weak peoples. One does not get any further than the expression of these pious wishes. We see no trace of understanding in the face, in the fact that imperialism is indissolubly bound up with capitalism in its present form. 
Lenin adds two exclamation marks there. And therefore, also in a trace of the realization that an open struggle against imperialism would be hopeless, unless perhaps the fight is confined to protest against a certain against certain of its especially horned excesses. Since the reform of the basis of imperialism is a deception, a pious wish, since the bourgeois representatives of oppressed nations go no further forward, the bourgeois representatives of the oppressing nations go further backward to, servi to servility towards imperialism, concealed by the cloak of science, logic indeed. The question is as to whether it is possible to reform the basis of imperialism, whether to go forward to the aggravation of the antagonisms which it engenders, or backwards to towards availing the, these antagonisms is a fundamental question in the critique of imperialism. As a consequence of the fact that the political features of imperialism are reacting, reaction all along the line, an increased national oppression resulting from the oppression of the financial oligarchy and the elimination of free competition, a democratic petty bourgeois opposition has been rising against imperialism in almost all imperialist countries since the beginning of the 20th century. And the desertion of Kautsky and the broad international Kautskyan trend of Marxism is displayed in the very fact that Kautsky not only did not trouble to oppose, not only was not able to oppose this petty bourgeois reformist opposition, which is really reactionary in its economic basis, but in practice actually became merged with it. In the United States, the imperialist war raged against Spain in 1898 stirred up the opposition of the anti-imperialist, the last of the Mohicans of bourgeois democracy. They declared this war to be criminal, denounced the annexation of foreign territories be as being a violation of the Constitution, and denounced the Jingo treachery by means of which Aguinaldo, leader of the native Philippine, the Filipinos, was deceived. The Americans promised him the independence of his country, but later they landed troops and annexed it. They quoted the words of Lincoln, quote, When the white man governs himself, that is self-government. But when he governs himself and also governs others, it is no longer self-government. It is despotism. Yes, that is Abraham Lincoln. Moving on. But while all this criticism shrank from recognizing the indissoluble bond between imperialism and the trusts, and therefore between imperialism and the very foundations of capitalism, while it shrank from joining up with the forces engendered by a large-scale capitalism in its development, it remained a pious wish. This is also, in the main, the attitude of Hobson in his criticism of imperialism. Hobson anticipated Kautsky in protesting against the inevitability of imperialism and in calling for the need to raise the consuming capacity of the people under capitalism. The petty bourgeois point of view in the critique of imperialism, the domination of the banks, the financial oligarchy, etc., is that adopted by the authors we have oft quoted, such as Agad, A. Landsberg, L. Estuage, and among French writers, Victor Barad author of, this, of a superficial book entitled England and Imperialism, which appeared in 1900. All of these authors make no claims to being Marxists. Contrast imperialism with free competition and democracy. They condemn the Baghdad Railway scheme as leading to disputes and war. 
under pious wishes for peace, etc. This applies also to the compiler of international stock and share issues statistics, a NAMERC, who, after calculating the hundreds of billions of francs representing international values, exclaimed in 1912, quote, Is it possible to believe that peace can be disturbed? That, in the face of these enormous figures, anyone would risk starting up a war? <clears throat> World War I, end quote. Such simplicity of mind on the part of the bourgeois economists is not surprising. Besides, it is in their interest to pretend to be so naive and to talk seriously about peace under imperialism. But what remains of Kautsky's Marxism when, in 1914-15-16, to to he takes up the same attitude as the bourgeois reformists and affirms that everybody is agreed, imperialists, pseudo-socialists, and social pacifists, as regards peace? Instead of an analysis of imperialism and an exposure of the depths of its contradictions, we have nothing but reformist pious wish to wave it aside to evade it. Here is an example of Kautsky's economic criticism of imperialism. He takes the statistics of British import and export trades to Egypt in 1872 and 1912. These statistics show that this trade, this import and export trade, has developed more slowly than British foreign trade as a whole. From this Kautsky concludes, quote, We have no reason to suppose that British trade with Egypt would have been less developed as a result of more operation of economic factors without military occupation. The urge of the present-day state to expand can best be satisfied not by the violent methods of imperialism, but by peaceful democracy, end quote. This argument, which is repeated in every key by Kautsky's armor-bearer and the Russian protector of social chauvinists, Mr. Spectator, who is a real man, forms the basis of Kautskyan criticism of imperialism, and that is why we must deal with it in greater detail. We will begin with a quotation from Hilferding, whose conclusions, as Kautsky on many occasions, and notably in April 1915 declared, may ha have been unanimously adopted by all social theoreticians. Quote, it is not the business of the proletariat, wrote Hilfiding, to contrast the more progressive capitalist policy to that of the now bygone era of free trade and of hostility towards the state. The reply of the proletariat to the economic policy of finance capital to imperialism cannot be free trade but socialism. The aim of the proletarian policy cannot now be the ideal of restoring free competition, which has now become a reactionary ideal but the complete abolition of competition by the abolition of capitalism. End quote. Kautsky departed from Marxism by advocating what is, in the period of financial capital, a, fi a reactionary ideal, peaceful democracy, the mere operation of economic factors, etc. For objectively, this ideal drags us back from monopoly capitalism to the non-monopolist stage, which is a reformist swindle. Trade with Egypt, or that with any other colony or semi-colony, would have been better developed, quote, without military occupation, without imperialism, and without financial capital. What does this mean? That capitalism would develop more rapidly if free competition were not restricted by monopolies in general? By the connections or yoke, i.e. the monopoly of financial finance capital, or by the monopolist possession of colonies by certain countries? Kautsky's argument can have no other meaning, and this meaning is meaningless. But suppose, for the sake of argument, free competition, without any sort of monopoly, would develop capitalism and trade more rapidly. Is it not a fact that the more rapidly trade and capitalism develop, 
the greater is the concentration of production and capital which gives rise to monopoly. And monopolies have already come into being precisely out of free competition. Even if monopolies have now begun to slow progress, it is not an argument in favor of free competition, which have become impossible since it gave rise to monopoly. Whichever way one turns Kautsky's argument, one will find nothing in it except reaction and bourgeois reformism. Even if we modify this argument and say, as Spectator says, that the trade of British colonies with the mother country is now developing more slowly than their trade with other countries, it does not save Kautsky, for it is also monopoly and imperialism that is beating Great Britain. Only it is the monopoly and imperialism of another country, America, Germany. It is known that the cartels have given rise to a new and peculiar form of productive tariff. Goods suitable for export are protected. Ingalls noted this in Volume 3 of Capital. It is known, too, that the cartels and finance capital have a system peculiar to themselves, that of exporting goods at dumping prices, or dumping, as the English call it. Within a given country, the cartel sells its goods at high prices fixed by monopoly, and sell abroad it sells them at much lower prices to undercut the competitor, to enlarge its own production to the, to the utmost, etc., if German trade with British colonies is developing more rapidly than that of Great Britain with the same colonies, it only proves that German imperialism is younger, stronger, and better organized than British imperialism, is, super is superior to it. But this by no means proves the superiority of free trade, for it is not free trade fighting against protection and colonial dependence, but two rival imperialisms, two monopolies, two groups of finance capital, the superiority of German imperialism over British imperialism is stronger than the wall of colonial frontiers or of protective tariffs. To use this, use this as an argument in favor of free trade and peaceful democracy is banality, is to forget the essential features and qualities of imperialism, to substitute petty bourgeois reformism for Marxism. It is interesting to note that even the bourgeois economist A. Landsberg, whose criticisms of imperialism is as petty bourgeois as Kautsky's, nevertheless got a closer to a more scientific study of commercial statistics. He did not compare merely one country chosen at random in a colony with the other countries. He examined the trade, the export trade of an imperialist country, one, with the countries that are financially dependent on it, which borrow money from it, and two, with countries which are financially independent. He noted the following. So we have a chart here of export trade of Germany within millions of marks by Landsberg. It has countries financially dependent on Germany, Romania, Portugal, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, and Turkey, which all had a percent increase in trade from 1889 to 1908, collectively of 92% increase. And then we have countries financially independent of Germany, Great Britain, France, Belgium, Switzerland, Australia, and the Dutch East Indies which in the same time period only had an increase of 87%. Back to Lenin. Landsberg did not add up the columns and therefore, strangely enough, failed to observe that if the figures prove anything at all, they prove that he is wrong, for the exports to countries financially dependent on Germany have grown more rapidly, if only slightly, than those to the countries which are financially independent. We emphasize the if, for Landsberg's figures are far from complete. On the relation between export, trade, and loans, Landsberg wrote, quote, wrote, wrote, quote, in 1890 to 91, a Romanian loan 
was floated through the German banks, which had already in previous years made advances on this loan. The loan was used chiefly for purchases by Romanian uh, railway material in Germany. In 1891, German exports to Romania amounted to 55 million marks. The following year, they fell to 39.4 million, then with fluctuations to 25.4 in 1900. Only in very recent years have they regained the level of 1891, thanks to a few new loans. German exports to Portugal rose the following, following the loans of 1888 to 89 to 21 million, 1890, and then fell in the two following years to 16.2 million and 7.4 million and only regained their former levels in 1903. German trade with the Argentine is still more striking. Following the loans floated in 1888 and 1890, German exports to the Argentine reached in 1889 60.7 million marks. Two years later, they only reached 18.6 million, that is to say, less than one-third of the previous figures. It was not until 1901 that they regained and surpassed the level of 89 and then only as a result of new loans floated by the state and, other, and by municipalities, with advances to build power stations and with other credit operations. As for Chile, exports to the country that ro rose to 45.2 million marks in 1892, after the loan negotiated in 1889. The following year, they filled to 22.5 million. A new Chilean loan floated by the German banks in 1806 was followed by a rise of exports and in 1907 to 84.7 million marks, only to fall again to 52.4 million marks in 1908. End quote. From all these facts, Landbergs draws the amusing petty bourgeois moral of how unstable and irregular export trade is when bound up with loans, how bad it is to invest capital, when it, uh, capital abroad instead of naturally and harmoniously developing home country, how constantly the backsheesh the pittance, that Krupp has to pay in floating loan, foreign loans, etc. But the facts are clear. The increase in exports is closely connected with the swindling tricks of financial capital, which is not concerned with bourgeois morality, but with skinning the ox twice. First it pockets the profits from the loan, then it pockets the other profits from the same loan, which the borrower uses to make purchases from Krupp, or to purchase railway materials from the steel syndicate, etc. We repeat that we do not by any means consider Landsberg figures to be perfect, but we had to quote them because Landsberg figures, because we had to quote them because they are more scientific than Kautsky and spectators, and because Landsberg showed the correct way of approaching the question. In discussing the significance of finance capital in regards to exports, etc., one must be able to single out the connection of exports, especially and solely with the tricks of financiers especially and solely with the sale of goods by cartels, etc., simply to compare colonies with non-colonies, one imperialism with another imperialism, one semi-colony or colony, Egypt, with all other countries, is to evade and tone down the very gist of the question. Kautsky's theoretical critique of imperialism has nothing in common with Marxism and serves no other purpose than as pre preamble to propaganda for peace and unity with the opportunists and social chauvinists precisely for the reason that it evades and obscures the very profound and radical contradictions of imperialism, the contradictions between monopoly and free competition that exist side by side with it, between gigantic operations and gigantic profits of financial capital and honest trade on the free market, 
the contradictions between combines and trusts on the one hand and, it, and non-trustified industry on the other, etc. The notorious theory of ultra-imperialism, invented by Kautsky, is equally reactionary. It compares arguments on the subject in 1915 with Hobson's arguments in 1902. Kautsky wrote, Whether the present imperialist policy cannot be supplanted by a new ultra-imperialist policy, which will be introduced which will introduce the joint exploitation of the world by internationally united finance capital in place of, a of the mutual rivalries of national finance capital. Such a new phase of capitalism is, at any rate, conceivable. Can it be achieved? Sufficient premises are still lacking to enable us to answer this question. Hobson. Christendom thus laid out in a few fe great federal empires each with a retinue of uncivilized dependencies, seems, many, seems to many the most legitimate development of present tendencies, and one which would offer the best hopes of permanent peace on a shared basis of, of inter-imperialism. Kautsky called ultra-imperialism or super-imperialism that what Hobson 13 years earlier had described as inter-imperialism. Except for coining a new and clever word by replacing one Latin prefix for another, the only progress Kautsky has made in the sphere of scientific thought is that he has rebelled as Mar that he has labeled as Marxism that which Hobson in effect described as the cant of English parsons. After the Anglo-Boer War, it was quite natural that this worthy caste should exert every effort to console the British middle class and the workers who had just lost many of their relatives on the battlefields of South Africa and who were obliged to pay higher taxes in order to guarantee still higher profits for British financiers. And what better consolation could be than that the theory that imperialism is not so bad, that it stands close to inter-ultra-imperialism, while it promises permanent peace, no matter what the good intentions of the British Parsons or of the sentimental Kautsky may have been, the only objective, i.e. real, social meaning, Kautsky's theory can have is that it is a most reactionary method of consoling the masses with hopes of permanent peace being possible under capitalism, detracting their attention from the sharp antagonisms and acute problems of the present era, and directing it along illusory perspectives of an imaginary ultra-imperialism of the future. Deception of the masses there is nothing in the, but this in Kautsky's Marxian theory. Indeed, it is enough to compare well-known and indisputable facts to become convinced of the utter falsity of the prospects which Kautsky tries to conjure up before the German workers and the workers of all lands. Let us consider India, Indochina, and China. It is known that these three colonial and semi-colonial countries inhabited by six to seven hundred million human beings are subjected to exploitation of finance capital of seven several imperialist states, Great Britain, France, Japan, the USA, etc. We will presume that these imperialist countries form alliances against one another to protect and extend their possessions, their interests, and their spheres of influence in these Asian countries. These alliances will be inter-imperialist or ultra-imperialist alliances. We presume that all the imperialist countries can conclude an alliance for the peaceful sharing out of all of these parts of Asia. This alliance would be an alliance of internationally united finance capital. As a matter of fact, alliances of this kind have been made in the 20th century, 
notably with regards to China. We ask, is it conceivable, assuming that the capitalist system remains intact, and that, and this is precisely the assumption that Kautsky does make, that such alliances would be more temporary, that they would eliminate friction, conflicts, and struggle in all and every possible form? This question only requires stating clearly enough to make it impossible for any but a negative reply to be given, for there can be no other conceivable basis under capitalism for the sharing out of spheres of influence, of interests, of colonies, etc., than a calculation of, of the strength of the participants in sharing out their general economic, financial, military strength, etc. And the strength of these participants in the share does not, out, does not char, change to an equal degree for the, under capitalism, the development of different undertakings, trusts, branches of industry, or countries cannot be even. Even a century ago, Germany was a miserable, insignificant country as far as its capitalist strength was concerned, compared with the strength of England at the time. Japan was similarly insignificant compared with Russia. Is it conceivable that in 10 or 20 years' time, the relative strength of the imperialist powers will have remained unchanged? Absolutely inconceivable. Therefore, inter-imperialist or ultra-imperialist alliances in the realities of the capitalist system and not in the banal Philistine fantasies of English Parsons or of the German Marxist Kautsky, no matter what form they may assume, whether of one imperialist coalition against another or of a general alliance embracing all the imperialist powers, are inevitably nothing more than a truce in periods between wars. Peaceful alliances prepare the grounds for wars and in their turn grow out of wars. The one is the condition for the other, giving rise to alternating forms of peaceful and non-peaceful struggle out of the single basis of imperialist connections and the relations between the world econ economics and the world, world politics. But the social chauvinists who have deserted to the side of the bourgeoisie, why is Kelsky separates one link of a single chain from the other, separates the present peaceful and ultra-imperialist, nay, ultra-ultra-imperialist, alliance of all the powers for the pacification of China, remember the suppression of the Boxer Rebellion, from the non-peaceful conflict of tomorrow, which will prepare the grounds for another peaceful general alliance for the participation, for the partition of, say, Turkey, on the one day between the periods of on the day after tomorrow, etc., etc., Instead of showing the vital connection between periods of imperialist peace and periods of imperialist war, Kautsky puts the workers before the workers of lifeless abstractions solely in order to reconcile them to their lifeless leaders. An American writer, David Jane Hill, in his History of Diplomacy in the International Development of Europe, points out in his preface the following periods of con contemporary dip diplomatic history. First, revolutionary period. Second, the constitutional movement, third, the present period of commercial imperialism. Right, another writer divides the history of Great Britain's foreign policies since 1870 into four periods. One, the first Asiatic period, that of the struggle against Russia's advance in Central Asia towards India. Two, the African period, approximately 1885 to 1902, that of the struggle against France for the partition of Africa. The Fashoda Incident of 1898, which brought France in within a hair's breadth of war with Great Britain. 3. 
the Second Asiatic Period, alliance with Japan against Russia, and for the European period, chiefly anti-German. The political skirmishes of outposts take place on the financial field, wrote Reisseyer, the banker, in 1905, in showing how French finance capital operating in Italy was preparing the way for a political alliance between the countries, and how a conflict was developing between Great Britain and Germany over Persia, among all the European capitalists over Chinese loans, etc. Behold the living reality of peaceful ultra-imperialist alliances and their indissoluble connection with ordinary imperialist conflicts. Toning down the deepest contradictions of imperialism by Kautsky, which inevitably become an embellishment of imperialism, leaves its trace in, the, in this writer's criticism of the political features of imperialism. Imperialism is the epoch of finance capital and of monopolies, which introduce everywhere the striving for domination, not for freedom. The result is reaction among the line, whatever the political system and an extreme intensification of existing antagonisms in this domain also. Particularly acute becomes the yoke of national oppression and the striving for annexations, i.e. the violation of national independence, for annexation is nothing else than a violation of the right of nations to self-determination. Hilferding just justly draws attention to the relation between imperialism and the growth of national oppression. Quote, in regards to the newly opened up countries themselves, he writes, the, capitalists, cap, the capitalism imported into them intensifies contradictions and constantly excites the growing resistance against the intruders of the people who are awakened to the national consciousness. This resistance can easily become transformed into dangerous measures directed against foreign capital. The old social relations become completely revolutionized. The, the age-long agrarian incrustation of nations without a history is blasted away, and they are drawn into the capitalist whirlpool. Capitalism itself gradually procures for the vanquished the means and resources for their emancipation, and they set out to achieve the same goal which once seemed highest to the European nations, the creation of a single nation national state as a means to economic and cultural freedom. This movement for national independence threatens European capital in its valuable and most promising fields of exploitation and European capital can maintain its domination to an increasingly extent only by continually increasing its means of exercising violence. End quote. To this point must be added that not only in newly opened up countries but also in the old, that imperialism is leading to annexation, to the increased national oppression, and consequently to the increased resistance. While opposing the intensification of political reaction caused by imperialism, Kautsky obscures the question that which has become very serious of impossible of the impossibility of unity with the imperialist in the epoch of imperialism. While objecting to annexations, he presents his objection in the form that will mo that he will most acceptable that will be most accessible and at least offensive to the opportunists. He addresses himself to the German audience, yet he obscures the most topical and important point. For instance, the annexation of Germany by Germany of Alsace-Lorraine. In order to appraise this mental aberration, we will take the following example. Let us suppose that, a Jap that J the Japanese are condemning the annexation of the Philippines by the Americans. Will many believe that he is doing so because... He has an honor of annexations. He has the horror of annexations as such, and not because he himself desires to annex the Philippines. We shall not be constrained to admit that the fight 
that the fight the Japanese is waging against annexations can be regarded as sincere and politically honest only if he fights against the annexation of Korea by Japan and urges freedom for Korea to succeed from Japan? Kautsky's theoretical analysis of imperialism, as well as his economic and political criticism of imperialism, is permeated through and through with a spirit absolutely incompatible with Marxism, of obscuring and glossing over the most profound contradictions of imperialism, and with a striving to preserve the crumbling unity with opportunism and the European labor movement at all costs. End of chapter 9. Chapter 10. The Place of Imperialism in History. We have seen that the economic quintessence of imperialism is monopoly capitalism. This very fact determines its place in history for monopoly that grew up on the basis of free competition and out of free competition is the transition from the capitalist system to a higher social economic order. We must take special note of the four principal forms of monopoly, or the four principal manifestations of monopoly capitalism, which are characteristic of the period under review. 1. Monopoly arose out of the concentration of production at a very advanced stage of development. This refers to the monopolist capitalist com combines, cartels, syndicates, and trusts. We have seen the important role these play in modern economic life. At the beginning of the 20th century, monopolies acquired complete supremacy in the advanced countries. And although the first steps towards the formation of, a com of the combines acquired complete supremacy in the advanced countries, And although the first steps towards the formation of the combines were first taken by countries enjoying the protection of high tariffs, America, America and Germany, England, with her system of free trade, was not far behind in revealing the same phenomena, namely the birth of monopoly out of the concentration of production. Second, monopolies have accelerated the capture of the most important sources of raw materials, especially for the coal and iron industries which is basic and most highly trustified industry in capitalist society. The monopoly of the most important sources of raw material has enormously increased the power of big capital and has sharpened the antagonism between the trustified and non-trustified industries. Third, monopoly has sprung from the banks. The banks have developed from modest intermediary enterprises into the monopolist finance of capital. Some three or five of the biggest banks in each of the foremost capitalist countries have achieved the personal union of industrial and bank capital, and have concentrated in their hands the power to dispose of thousands upon thousands of millions, which form the greater part of the capital and revenue of entire countries. A greater part of the capital and revenue of yeah, a financial oligarchy, which throws a, net, a closed net of relations of dependency over all the economic and political institutions of contemporary bourgeois society without exception, such is the most striking manifestation of this monopoly. And fourth, monopoly has grown out of colonial policy. To this numerous old motives of, of colonial policy, finance capital has added the struggle for the sources of raw materials, for the export of capital, for spheres of influence, i.e. for spheres of good business, concessions, monopolist profits, and so on. And fine, for economic territory in general. When the colonies of European powers in Africa comprised only one-tenth of that territory, as was the case in 1876, 
colonial policy was able to develop the meth by methods other than those of monopoly, by the free grabbing of territory, so to speak. But when nine-tenths of Africa had been seized, approximately in 1900, when the whole world has been shared out, it was inevitably ushered in a period of colonial monopoly, and consequentially, a period of intense struggle for the partition and the repartition of the world. <clears throat> the extent to which monopolist cap capital has intensified all the contradictions of capitalism is generally known. It is sufficient to mention the high cost of living and, and the power of the trust. The intensification of contradictions constitutes the most powerful driving force of the transitional period of history, which began at the time of definite victory of, the, of world finance capital. Monopolies, oligarchy, the striving for do domination instead of the striving for liberty, the exploitation of an increasingly no increasing number of smaller weak nations by an extremely small group of the richest or most powerful nations. All of these have given birth to these disti those distinctive features of imperialism which compel us to define it as parasitic or decaying capitalism. More and more there emerges as more as one of the tendencies of imperialism the creation of the bond-holding or rentier state, the usurer state, in which the bourgeoisie lives on the proceeds of capital exports and by clipping coupons. It would be a mistake to believe that this tendency to decay precludes the possibility of the rapid growth of capitalism. It does not. In the epoch of imperialism, Certain branches of industry, certain strata of the bourgeoisie, and certain countries betray, to a greater extent or less degree, one, of, one or other of these tendencies. On the whole, capitalism is growing far more rapidly than before, but it is not only that this growth is becoming more and more uneven. This unevenness manifests itself also. In particular, the decay of the countries, which are richest in capital, such as England. In regard to the rapidity of German, Germany's economic development, Reiser, the author of the book on the Great German Banks, states, quote, The process of the preceding the progress of the preceding period, eighteen forty eight to seventy, which had not been exactly slow, stood in at about the same ratio to the rapidity which had the whole of Germany's national economy, and with it German banking progress during this period, eighteen seventy to nineteen oh five. As the mail coach of the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation stood to the speed of the present day automobile, which in whizzing past it must be said, often endangers not only innocent pedestrians in its past, but also the occupants of the car, end quote. In its turn, this finance capital, which has grown so rapidly, is not unwilling, precisely because it has grown so quickly, to pass on to a more tranquil possession of colonies, which have been captured, and not only by peaceful methods, from richer nations. In the United States, economic development in the last decades have been even more rapid than Germany. And for this very reason, the parasitic character of modern American capitalism has stood out with particular prominence. On the other hand, a comparison of, say, the Republican American bourgeoisie with the monarchist Japanese or German bourgeoisie shows that the most pronounced political differences become insignificant, insignificant during the imperialist period, not because they are unimportant in general, but because throughout it is a is. It is a case of a bourgeoisie with definite traits of parasitism. The receipt of high monopoly profits by capitalists in one of the, the numerous branches of industry and in one of the numerous countries, etc., make it economically possible for them to corrupt individual sections of the working class and sometimes a fairly considerable minority and win them 
to the side of the capitalists of a given industry or nation against all the others. The intensifications of antagonism between imperialist nations in the, for the partition of the world increases this striving. And so there is created that bond between imperialism and opportunism, which revealed itself first and most clearly in England, owing to the fact that certain features of imperialist development were observable much sooner than in other countries. Some writers, El Martov, for example, try to evade the fact that there is a connection between imperialism and opportunism in the labor movement, which is particularly striking at the present time, by resorting to stereotype op optimistic arguments, a la Kautsky and Huysman, like the following. The case of the, of the opponents of capitalism that, would, that led to the increase of opportunism, or if it were precisely, the best paid workers who were inclined towards opportunism, etc., we must have no illusion regarding optimism of this kind. It is optimism in regard to opportunism. It is optimism which serves the conceal which serves to conceal opportunism. As a matter of fact, the extraordinary rapidity of the particular revolting character of the development of opportunism is by no means a guarantee. That its victory will be durable. The rapid growth of a malignant abscess on a healthy body only causes it to burst quickly, and thus to relieve the body of it, the most dangerous people of all in this respect are those who do not wish to understand that the fight against imperialism is a sham and humbug, unless it is inseparably bound up with the fight against opportunism. From all that has been said in the book, in this book on the economic nature of imperialism, it follows that we must define it as capitalism in transition, or more precisely, as moribund capitalism. It is very instructive in this respect to note that the bourgeois economists in describing modern capitalism frequently employ terms like interlocking, absence of isolation, etc. In accordance with their function of course of development, banks are not purely private business enterprises. They are more and more outgrowing the sphere of purely private business regulations. And this very Ricer, who uttered the words just quoted, declares with all seriousness that the prophecy of, Marx, of the Marxists concerning socialization has not been realized. What then does this word interlocking express? It merely expresses the most striking feature of the process going on before our eyes. It shows that the observer counts the separate trees but without seeing the wood. It slavishly copies the superficial and fortuitous the fortuitous, the chaotic. It reveals the observer as one overwhelmed by the mass of raw material and utterly incapable of appreciating its meaning and importance. Ownership of shares and inter and relations between owners and private property interlocking in a haphazard way. But the underlying factor of this interlocking is very base. It's the changing social relations of production. When a big when a big enterprise assumes gigantic proportions and on the basis of exact comp computation of mass data organizes according to the plan the supply of primary raw materials to the extent of two-thirds or three-fourths of all that is necessary for tens of millions of people. When these raw materials are transported to the most suitable place of production, sometimes hundreds or thousands of miles away, in a systemic and or systematic and organized manner, when a single center directs all the successive stages of work, right up to the manufacture of numerous varieties of finished articles. When the products are distributed according to a single plan among tens of hundreds of millions of consumers. 
as in the case of the distributors of oil in America and Germany by the American Standard Oil. Then it becomes evident that we have socialized, we have the socialization of production and not mere interlocking, that private economic relations and private property relations constitute a shell which is no longer suitable for its contents, a shell which must, which must of necessity begin to decay if its destruction be postponed by artificial means, a shell which may continue in a state of decay for a fairly long period, particularly if the cure of the opportunists abscessed is protracted, but which must inevitably be removed. <clears throat> the enthusiastic admirer of German imperialism, Schulze Gabernitz, exclaims, Once the supreme management of the German banks has been entrusted to the hands of a dozen persons, their activity is even more significant for the public good than that of the majority of the ministers of state. The interlocking of bankers, ministers, magnates of industry, and bondholders is here conveniently forgotten, says Lenin. And back to Schulze Gavernitz, if we conceive of the tendencies of development, which we have noted as realized to the utmost, the money capital of the nation united in the banks, the banks themselves combined in, in cartels, the investment capital of the nation cast in the shape of securities, then the brilliant forecast of St. Simon will be fulfilled. <clears throat> The present anarchy of production caused by the fact that economic relations are developing without uniform regulation must make way for organization and production. Production will no longer be shaped by isolated manufacturers, independent of each other and ignorant of man's economic needs, but by a social institution, a central body of management able to survey the large fields of social economy from a mere elevated point of view will relegate it for the benefit of the whole of society will be able to put the means of productions into suitable hands and will above all will take care that there be constant hum will take care that there will be constant harmony between production and consumption institutions already exist for which we have assumed as part of their task for a certain organization of economic labor the banks the fulfillment of the forecast of saint simon still lies in future but we are on its way to its fulfillment marxism different from Mar what Marx imagined, but only different in form. End quote. A crushing refutation of Marx indeed. It is a retreat from Marx's precise and scientific analysis to St. Simon's guesswork. The guesswork of a genius, but guesswork all the same. End of chapter 10 of Imperialism and End of Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism by Vladimir Lenin. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Book Club Commune and enjoyed this series as a whole. It's always good to actually finish up reading a book. Um, next episode, we're going to just turn the page right along and get into uh, State and Revolution by Vladimir Lenin. Um, after that, I really have no clue what we'll be reading after that. Um, I've toyed around with the idea of reading some Ho Chi Minh or reading some uh, Juche theory or I don't know. It's really up in the air. I do want to read some queer theory, but I need to figure out uh, what to read and the copyright issues surrounding any th theory like that. Um, so it is really up in the air. If you have any suggestions for what we should read after State and Revolution, um, 
reach out to me on my Twitter at moonjunk, M-0-0-N-J-U-N-K on Twitter. Um, just send me a message and just get, say this is a suggestion or whatever. I don't know. It, it's whatever. I don't, I don't I really don't know. I, I'll, I'll figure something out. Uh, but until then, that's the best we're, we're going to do for now. Um, until then, uh, solidarity forever and keep on reading. Thank you.